Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Happy Columbus Day. Uh, it means there's no mail, right? There's no, no banking. But uh, apparently the University of Virginia is still in session, which is uh, good news for us because our special guest is Professor Larry Sabato. Uh, good morning, Larry. How are you? Good morning, Charlie. Doing doing real well. Although I sh- you talked about the mail not being served today. I haven't received mail from the U.S. Post Office for now nine consecutive days, and I've received it five, five times in the entire month of September. That's how disorganized the post office is. So I, I just wanted to work that in. Well, fortunately, there's nothing important going on in Virginia that would require the mail to be working, right? Oh, wait, yeah. we have a governor's I, election coming up. So what is what is the story? I've, I've seen you tweet about this. What is the story with the mail there? Uh, well, I don't know. I know that uh, Senator Mark Warner came down, I guess, uh, once about a month ago to complain about what was going on because he was getting so much feedback from constituents in this area. And it's much more widespread than Charlottesville and Almar huh. County. It's around the state and it's around the country in certain places. But uh, there are thousands of people, thousands of us here who receive mail in a very spotty fashion. And I'm being generous in saying it's once a week. I have gone two weeks without mail uh, at times. Uh, This is this is outrageous. Everybody is missing the bill deadlines. They're they're missing checks. They're missing some medications. Uh, it's absolute chaos, and no one at the top, hello, Louis DeJoy, is doing anything about it, apparently. We're, we're just in a, we're in a black zone here. We're in a dead zone for mail. So maybe you could clarify this for me, because I've taken my eye off this particular, but what is, why does Louis DeJoy still have his job? Well, I've been told that uh, <laughs> that it's because he's hanging on by one vote on, on his board, and that that person is being replaced in December. Whether the information is accurate, I don't know. Somebody gave it to me on Twitter. Yeah. So that brings it Must into question true. immediately. <laughs> so so for, for listeners, obviously, I think they, they're familiar with, with your work, Larry. Um, Larry Sabato is the founder and the director of the University of Virginia's Center for Politics and the publisher of Sabato's Crystal Ball Newsletter. And his latest book is A Return to Normalcy, the 2020 election that almost broke America. Not sure about the almost, though. Well, that was when we published it in January. So uh, <laughs> also, I sure am glad I added a, added a question mark there. A return to normalcy? Question yeah. Mark. Because well, speak- if this is normal, I'm, I don't want to have much more normalcy. So before we, we, we dive into all of this, um, you, you were not actually canceled. Uh, I, I know that Republicans are, are vocally against the cancel culture, except when it comes to people they don't like and... Last fall, do I remember this correctly? The Virginia Republican Party wrote a letter complaining about your tweets and suggesting that the University of Virginia needed to crack down on you, Professor. That was that was this year, late spring. Oh, that was uh, this spring. Okay, absolutely. No, they they did it because they did they cited my tweets against Trump, and if you look at them, you'll see I never use obscenity. I'm very careful about that. Uh, are some of them tough? You bet, because Trump is so incredibly outrageous and historically an anomaly. At least I hope he's an anomaly. Well, speaking of the return to normalcy, and I know that you've commented on this, the the number of opportunities Republicans have had to uh, take the off ramp. And of course, over the weekend in Des Moines, uh, the president spoke, uh, was embraced by the entire Republican establishment. Let me just read Politico writes. 
Nine months ago, Republicans were questioning Donald Trump's place as the lead fixture of their party. Saturday night provided the clearest evidence yet that they want him right there. Not one year removed from surviving a second impeachment, the former president rallied before thousands of his most loyal supporters across the Iowa State Fairgrounds on a balmy Midwestern evening. He regaled them with his stories from the White House, his falsehoods and complaints about the 2020 election results and his criticisms of the Biden administration. And there we have uh, Senator Chuck Grassley, who about five minutes ago was criticizing the president for his role in the insurrection accepting, enthusiastically accepting Trump's endorsement. Here's 88-year-old Chuck Grassley. I'm thrilled to announce tonight that Senator Chuck Grassley has my complete and total endorsement for re-election, well, that's, Chuck. That's, that's Trump. Yeah. I was born at night, but not last night. So if I didn't accept the endorsement of a person that's got 91% of the Republican voters in Iowa, I wouldn't be too smart. I'm smart enough to accept that endorsement. Thank you, So once again, um, Larry, the Republicans who look like they might be edging away after January 6th are, uh, are still all in, aren't they? They certainly are. And if anything, they've gone deeper in because Trump has become even more outrageous than he was before. Uh, the big lie, I've often asked myself, does he really believe it? Is he like uh, many people who are behind bars, who repeat their alibi so often that over the years or months or days, they come to really believe it? Uh, I don't know what the answer to that is, but I know it is terribly wrong that Trump is doing it, and even worse, that all the senior Republicans, except for a couple like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, are are uh, going along with it, are backing Trump, are edging away from the criticisms they made January 6th, January 7th, January 8th. It didn't take them long to take it back, Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, and many others, and the ones who who were quiet for a while, have all decided they love Trump. Well, uh, here's an example of this. Steve Scalise, who's the number two Republican in the House, uh, was on Fox News yesterday with Chris Wallace. And Chris Wallace gave him three opportunities to say that uh, Joe Biden was legitimately elected president, that the election was not stolen. And I'm sure you, you heard this, but for our listeners, here's uh, Chris Wallace asking Steve Scalise the first time. Let me ask you one last question in this regard. I, clearly, there were irregularities in the last election. There are irregularities in all elections. But I, I want to ask you a specific question. Do you think the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump? And, and in continue, continuing to make that charge, not uh, having states do election reforms, but specifically making this charge that the election was stolen, do you think that that hurts, undermines American democracy. Well, Chris, I've been very clear from the beginning. If you look at a number of very states, clear. they didn't follow their state passed laws <sighs> that govern the election for president. That is what the United States Constitution says. They don't say that the states determine what the rules are. They say the state legislatures determine the, but the rules. But the states all certified. States, they didn't the, follow those state legislative rules. The, the states all certified. those legislative rules. Right. But at the end of the day, are we going to follow what the Constitution says? 
Okay, that was number one. Chris Wallace, the NAS, Steve Scalise, a second time, just to clarify this. Okay, here's number two. So you think the election was stolen? What I said is there are states that didn't follow their legislatively set rules. That's what the United States Constitution says. Okay, and number three, give him one last chance. Was the election stolen or not, Steve Scalise? There was a rally for President Trump yesterday, and a number of people said, Joe Biden's not my president. Uh, Donald Trump is my president. I I guess the question is, do you think the election, uh, last time, I promise, do you think the election was stolen or not? I understand you think there were irregularities and things that need to be fixed. Do you think the election was stolen? And it's not just irregular. It's states that did not follow the laws set, which the Constitution says they're supposed to follow. When you see states like Georgia cleaning up some of the mess and people calling that Jim Crow law, that's a flat out lie. Uh, I think that's the the new law against that sort of thing. All right. So three opportunities refused to say the number two Republican in the House representative refusing to say uh, that the election was not stolen. (laughs) <laughs> what can you what can you say? What can you do? You know, I can excuse some people out there who who are busy and doing other jobs and, and they listen too much to Donald Trump and maybe they're part of the Trump cult. Yeah. But there is absolutely no excuse for Steve Scalise not to know the facts. And, you know, I studied the Constitution. I wrote a book about it. I, I kind of think I know maybe just a tiny little bit more than Representative Scalise, and he is absolutely wrong in what he has said about not following the constitutional rules. What's happening is some of the states that were very close but have Republican legislatures and governors are trying to rearrange the system so that they can simply discount the popular vote if it doesn't go their way. Mm -hmm. You talk about stimulating a revolution, there you go. Well, let's talk about this because, you know, these lies have had real consequences and you have some new polling on the political, social, philosophical divisions between Biden voters and Trump voters. And it's pretty it's pretty stark and we've gotten a lot of attention. Uh, This is a uh, partnership between your center for politics and a group called Project Home Fire. Correct. And you've been releasing these numbers. So the first release of the findings, I really captured the fear and the distrust between voters on each side. Uh, you you describe the divide between the two camps as deep, wide, and dangerous. Fifty two percent of Trump voters, forty one percent of Biden voters, say they favor seceding from America. So, yes, I mean they want they want the other states to secede. They want the the blue states want the red states to secede, and the red states want the blue states to secede. And that feeling is more intense and widespread among the Trump group than among the Biden group. Though I'll tell you, I was shocked at the numbers when I saw them. I'd, I'd half suspected that we'd have a sizable percentage in the Trump voters. I did not realize we'd have 41% saying the same thing on the Biden side. I guess both sides have just had enough. Now, I don't believe that if they thought about it, they would really be in favor of secession. Uh, that was kind of resolved in the 1860s. There's even a Supreme Court decision saying it's not yeah. possible. But uh, it's disturbing and it suggests that the feelings out there are so intense that anything can happen, including more violence. Well, you you talked to Susan, the New Yorker, Susan Glasser wrote about this survey uh, and she wrote the survey shows this is not a that this is not a problem of ideology or policy or the other markers of conventional American politics. It is it is something much deeper and more intractable two parties whose members now hate one another with a fierce anti-democratic constitutional threatening passion. 
so I guess that's that is the question. I mean, how serious is this? I mean, how much of this is just people venting, um, you know, using the kind of talking points they get on social media? I mean, how serious is this? I mean, how, your, your your gut level is this something fundamentally new in American politics? I mean, in in oh, our lifetime. Yeah, in our lifetimes. I was going to say, yeah, unfortunately, yeah, yeah, yeah. in American history, it isn't. Yeah. Uh, I take it very seriously. I think everyone should take it seriously. And I'll, I'll tell you this, I'm really convinced of this. As long as Donald Trump remains on the stage, whether it's center stage or a little bit off center stage, democracy in America is not safe. And I'm sorry, I, there's no other rational conclusion one can come to, having viewed his administration, having viewed January 6th, and having viewed the way he's conducted himself uh, ever since then, it's been even worse than it was during the administration. So here's a soundbite from a Trump supporter at the rally over the weekend, actually talking about civil war. It's a very, very short uh, soundbite. This is a Trump supporter from the weekend. We're not going to take it anymore. I see a civil war coming. I do. Uh, look, I mean, obviously, I was going to ask you, do, do people actually understand what a civil war would entail? But obviously they don't. They haven't thought this through. But it really does underline the findings of your survey that you go out and you put a microphone in people's faces and they say, we're not going to take it anymore. I feel a civil war coming, which is so strange from people who are always talking about make America great again. I mean, how, how on the one hand do you say make America great again, wave the American flag and say, let's bust up the country? Yeah, well, they're really saying make America the way it was and the way I liked it again. That's what they're really saying. And by the way, what is it? in her sentence there. We're not going to take it anymore. What is it? In defining it, I think you get to the nub of the problem, whether it's anti-immigration, other racial concerns that are very clearly motivating much of the Trump base. There are other things as well, some legitimate, some not. But you can't expect people to do all the research themselves. They listen to their political leaders Someone they respect, why they respect Trump, I can't tell you, uh, but they respect him and they take their information from him and other distortive sources that are feeding misinformation on and off the Internet, on and off TV stations. And it keeps ratcheting up the outrage. Your, your survey found, I must see, obviously you know this, 84% of Trump voters said that Democratic officials are a clear and present danger to society. 78% of Trump voters said the same about Americans who support strongly support Democrats. Among Biden voters, 80% say Republican officials are a clear and present danger. 75% said the same about Americans who strongly support them. So we really are at a point now where, where feelings have been ratcheted up and we don't look at each other as fellow citizens uh, who are going to discuss and debate and persuade one another. Increasingly, we see one another as aliens and enemies, don't we? I'm afraid that is absolutely true, uh, and it shows no sign of lessening, and it will continue as long as the, the fire is fed by those at the top, like Trump. He's not the only one, but he is the one that people focus on, and he's not being contradicted by 99% of the elected Republicans. Uh, not that high a percentage, but I would say 75, 80% of those in high office actually speak out in favor of Trump. They say good things about Trump. They're, they're already endorsing him, in effect, for 2024. Can you imagine what a second Trump term would be like? Actually, Authoritarian, I, I 
Authoritarianism yeah. is real. It's happened across the world in history in many uh, formerly democratic uh, societies and republics. We have no right to think that we're different. You know, it is the 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 doom loop of in, of disinformation where where the Republican Party has a leadership problem and a followership problem. So the leaders are afraid of their base. They're afraid of pushing back and telling them the truth. And then, like we just heard Steve Scalise, they you know go, give a wink and a nod, so they don't they don't push back on it. Or people like Chuck Grassley seem to actually embrace it. And as a result, so it, it, it's not just coming from the top. It's also coming from the grassroots here. Here's a, I have a little soundbite for you. This is from, you know, Sarah Longwell, our colleague, uh, is doing these uh, focus groups and has a fantastic but quite depressing podcast about this. And here's a recent podcast of uh, we're, uh, about 40 seconds of, of Trump voters talking about the election, because you can see how deeply ingrained this big lie has become. I believe that there were a half a dozen precincts around the country um, that were tapped into and that nobody wants to do anything about it. And I think it goes all the way back to Hillary Clinton's server. I believe the election was stolen. I think we all saw what happened in Fulton County, the audits that are coming out. I mean, to go to bed and to have such a lead and to wake up and be so overturned with something and then the story started pouring in about the people coming in the middle of the night. I am a veteran. Um, in 1776, a group of people decided to defend this country and there's a group of people ready to defend it now. Uh, shoot me now. Okay. Yeah. So Larry, um, that, that, yeah, that, that last, that last reference, I mean, for people who think that Political violence is not a real threat. What do you think he's talking about there? I mean, that was the rhetoric of January 6th. Uh, well, it certainly was, uh, although you're talking to a guy who was uh, not just in Charlottesville, but uh, when the neo-Nazis invaded, who were you know, wearing uh, Hitler's propaganda uh, swastikas and, and shouting his slogans. What that has to do with Confederate statues, I don't know. But they passed right in front of my house. Uh, with their little tiki torches and, and screaming and then uh, pounding on students and beating them up uh, just uh, yards from my house. Uh, I've seen it already. I've seen it up close. January 6th was the second installment, for me at least, and for people here. And I just have no confidence that we won't have a third installment and more. So here's the thing that's kind of puzzling about your, your survey, or maybe it's about the state of the American political mind here because, you know, despite all of this really vicious division, there's actually kind of this weird bipartisan agreement on a lot of uh, what we used to think of as uh, as the substantive political things like infrastructure, social safety, you know, the, the social safety net bill. Um, you know, I mean, obviously the level of support varies for roads and bridges, water, broadband, all of these, these other things, but that's not where the division is, is there? I mean, we're really not divided over the spending bills. It's something different, isn't it? It's something else. It, it gets to the core of who people are and what they believe and their emotions. Uh, it's, it's sad, but true. Uh, hate is uh, more it generates more energy than love in politics. Fear generates mm -hmm. more energy uh, than hope, and uh, that is at, at 
work here because once you turn on the hate machine, once you turn on the fear machine and you relate it to issues that supposedly represent the values you're talking about, which would be the border, immigration, race generally, the critical race theory, which by the way, I've been a teacher for 46 years. I never even knew what it was until people started talking about it. Uh, It's not even taught in Virginia, but uh, a lot of this is made up, but people are in a frame of mind to believe it. That's why they believe anything they read on Facebook or that they come across on the internet or for that matter, Twitter. You know, I used to think Twitter was a, a, a tiny segment yeah. of the electorate with really strong feelings. No, actually, I think they are representative of a very large share of the electorate today, both right and left. Well, when the, the, the second release of the findings of this survey found uh, 84% of Trump voters worry about discrimination against whites and think Christianity is under attack. So the whole campaign to convince white Christians, white uh, conservatives that they are victims has been tremendously successful. It's gotten real traction, hasn't it? It has. And ask yourself whether a few decades ago you could have imagined Christian conservatives and evangelicals supporting a man like Donald Trump. And yet more than 80% did. And that tells you how frightened they are. And I'm sorry, how filled with hate many of them are toward those they believe are persecuting them. Uh, You know, whites are still a, a very sizable majority in the United States. And while there are certainly instances of discrimination against whites in admissions or other things, uh, as a as a white man, having lived almost 70 years, I haven't felt it very often. What about you? No, not really. No. I, and, you know, there's there's kind of a you, you put your finger on sort of the asymmetry, the the emotional investment. Look, I mean, your survey would find that Biden voters are really concerned about racial and social justice. And they feel very strongly about it. But Trump voters fear and they fear they're going to suffer personally, socially, culturally, economically. It's it, it strikes me as a more visceral fear. So how do you balance out the OK, the altruism, um, the you know arc of history bending in a certain way, those beliefs versus that that visceral personal fear that they're coming to replace you? Here's what we're suggesting at the Center for Politics, and people can go to our website, centerforpolitics.org, and take a look at all the pieces of the survey and sign up for the crystal ball because we have several more pieces of this survey coming. What are we trying to do? We're trying to identify pieces, segments of the Biden coalition and the Trump coalition that agree on ABC or XYZ, bring them together or talk more about those issues. If you want to reduce uh, the uh, the uh, anger, if you want to do something to unite rather than to divide, is it easy to do? Of course not. But we're going to have to take aggressive action to stop this because it will continue of its own momentum. So here's another one of the scariest things from your survey. There's so much that's scary in, in the survey, but and I know that this is going to be a little bit risky because there's a, always a, a constituency out there that, that hates uh, any suggestion of both sidesism. But you found in your survey significant numbers in both camps favoring censoring uh, the extreme media on the other side, uh, both Biden and Trump voters showed what you described basically as a wavering commitment to democratic system. 
close to half on each side, each side said it would be better if the president could take action without being constrained by Congress or the courts. So I'm kind of wondering, I mean, there's a sort of assumption that, you know, one party is anti-democratic, but we can count on the left and Democrats to stand behind democratic institutions. I just wonder how long that stays if, in fact, we have these continuing erosions and assaults on our norms. It's disturbing. We need to remember, though, that for the left and for Democrats, they're reacting to what they've seen uh, starting in 2015 with the Trump side and throughout the Trump administration. So it's not really both sidesism. It's more recognizing that both sides have reached a certain point of disgust or anger or fear. And now they're at a similar point, and it's a very dangerous point. So, look, I'm, I have a little different view on this. I'm at Thomas Jefferson's University, and I believe free speech is, is wild and crazy, and you have to put up with a lot. And I'm not in favor of many limitations on speech. But the fact that so many Americans all across the spectrum are reevaluating their prior support for free speech mm. and, and reaching the conclusion, free speech for me, but not for thee, that is also undermining democracy. So let's talk about where where Joe Biden is uh, right now. The uh, the conventional wisdom is that he's really in um, I won't say free fall, but that he's uh, really in bad shape. Five thirty eight put out a tweet this morning saying, for now at least, Biden has a lower approval rating at this point in his term than all but two presidents since nineteen forty five. So if he's going to regain his popularity, he's got an unusually big hole to dig himself out of. There has been a range in the polls, which you have pointed out. You have some polls suggesting he's as low at 38, others that he's more at 50. What is your sense of where, where he's at and how deep that hole is for him? I think uh, a fair analysis would show that he's in the mid-40s, maybe as high as 47, somewhere in that vicinity. Remember, he got 51% of the vote. We live in a very partisan, polarized era. I don't think he can go much above 51 unless... Mm -hmm. Heaven descends to the to Earth and the United yeah. States of America. The end of COVID and the like. So, what what is really hurting him? Um, there's a lot of speculation that this the frustration. It is COVID. Obviously, you have Democrats who are feuding with with one another. The economy is still strong. Um, Afghanistan didn't go well. What is your sense of, of of what kind of burst his bubble? Because there was a real sense of optimism earlier in the spring, early in the summer that seems completely dissipated. The first mistake, and I understand why they made it, but it is a mistake, was Joe Biden, President Biden, on July 4th or thereabouts, uh, declaring independence from COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, even many of his own health advisors cautioned that we could have additional variants and this could go on for a while. Then that was the, the original, the foundation, I think, of the problems he's having now. Then Afghanistan, it is certainly true, based on a fair analysis of the polls, that that mainly energized Republicans and people who already disliked Joe mm -hmm. Biden or hated Joe Biden. However, it looked bad to everybody, the withdrawal. That's fading, though. This, is, this uh, current problem for Biden is still about COVID, but it's also about the Democrats in Washington and their inability to get their act together. You know, as, as they always say, lock them in a room and refuse to give them food and water until they reach a compromise and then vote on it for the two big bills, infrastructure and build back better. Reach, reach a decision, reach a compromise, 
and do something. Uh, Democrats are frustrated, and it's affecting their enthusiasm level. For example, in my state of Virginia, in the governor's race, normally it wouldn't be close. The Democrat would would be winning handily, but that is not true. This is a close race. I want to talk about that in in a moment. It does strike me, looking at some other polls, including the CBS poll that came out yesterday, that uh, this has been a, a massive marketing fail for the Democrats, that that people don't really know what's in those bills. They just know that they're like a boatload of money. And so they they you know, people are familiar with the top line of 3.5 trillion which won't be 3.5 trillion. But they don't fee- they don't sound really familiar with the details, the child tax credit, you know, the family leave, you know, some of the the climate change legislation. What what is your sense on that? There there seems to be a gap at least in public perception of of what's in those bills. That's where president does come in. And you know, I would refer back to what Bill Clinton did during some of his times of trial. He'd go out into the Rose Garden every other day and advertise a popular mini program that he had established. Well, Americans don't know whether it's a maxi program or a mini program, but they like what they hear. Uh, we haven't seen that much from Joe Biden. They've just started sending him out the states. It's a little late for that, but he can still do it. The other reason, Charlie, is it's been changing. Every every day when you read the paper, something's dropped out and something's being expanded and this tax credit's being eliminated and this tax increase dropped out. And it's confusing even to those who follow it on a daily basis. That 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 is a great point because you it's hard to come out and say this is a fantastic thing that's in the bill because you don't know whether it's going to be in the bill or not. So uh, right. uh, the, the child tax credit strikes me as one of the most important uh, elements of all of this, uh, the impact that it's had on eliminating childhood poverty. And of course, it goes away at the end of the year. But how does that poll? I, I, initially, there was the sense that that's going to be very, very popular. But I've seen some indicators that doesn't play as well with people who don't have children. What what is your sense of how the child tax credit uh, plays with the American people? What you've just said is absolutely true, because people always relate these things to their self-interest. And if you don't have kids, or maybe you're not a teacher who works with them, uh, you may not have the same view of this kind of tax credit. But again, that's a failure of the selling job by the White House and congressional Democrats, because there are ways to explain this. Uh, If you help children when they're young and you make sure they're healthy and strong and they have a good education, they're going to be more productive citizens. They're not going to need the kind of support measures that too many need today to survive. So you can make these arguments, but you actually have to make them. People don't think of them on their own. You, you have to make them. And I, I think uh, also your, your point about the micro uh, plans, my experience has been that when you start talking about hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars, people's eyes glaze over, but they might react to something, you know, that has a more tangible amount of money, say, you know, all young parents should get $10,000. People can understand $10,000. They can't understand $10 trillion. Well, I can't either. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When you really get down to it, look, you're, I think you're old enough. I'm certainly old yeah. enough to remember Minority leader Everett Dirksen, who sure. used to go around during the Great Society saying, a billion here, a billion there. Pretty soon you're talking about real money. Well, now it's a trillion here, a trillion there. And now you're talking about real money. So you're absolutely right. People's eyes glaze over. You have to relate to the individual. Bill Clinton, for all of his faults, was very, very good at that. Joe Biden was in his heyday, not so much now. 
Okay, so let's talk about the Virginia governor's race because you're watching that very closely. You are right there. Uh, Terry McAuliffe has linked himself very, very closely to Joe Biden. So clearly the, the Biden swoon is affecting Terry McAuliffe. This election looks to be extremely close. What, is, how, what, do, you, what do you think it is? Where, what is the state of play today, Monday? The state of play today is that McAuliffe has a slight lead. It's, I think it's around three points. Uh, if you do the polling average, it's more like four, a little over four. Uh, and that's a, that's a marginal race for Virginia. Joe Biden won by 10 percentage points, a little more than 10 percentage points. Of course, that was the Trump factor. <laughs> he was on the ballot and loads of people who would have voted for another Republican candidate weren't about to vote for Trump. However, uh, even when you take Trump out of the race, and he's not totally out, he's endorsed the Republican mm-hmm. Glenn Youngkin, Youngkin over and over again. And, and this election integrity idea that Youngkin, Youngkin has is taken right from Trump. Uh, but basically, it's a close race. And the margin uh, that by which uh, McAuliffe is leading is certainly not insurmountable. I mean, we've seen four points disappear overnight, uh, depending on what happens or uh, a certain event that occurs or a mistake by a candidate, a gaffe, a scandal, who knows what it might be. And we still got three weeks. So if if McAuliffe has a Biden poll problem, y- Youngkin has the, the, the Trump problem. And, and I noticed that you know, back uh, late, late last month, you were uh, on CNN and you, you talked about the squeeze facing Youngkin because he's sort of caught between trying to sound reasonable, but also feeding the Trumpian base on all of these issues. How is he doing on it? It really is kind of walking a, a tightrope for, for for Glenn Youngkin, isn't it? Yes. I, I like to say it's tiptoeing through the tulips. And <laughs> so far, he's gotten through the tulip bed, but he's crushed some tulips along the way. He, he can't untie himself from Trump because that would lower enthusiasm among the Republican base here, which is heavily pro-Trump, intensely pro-Trump. They're not a majority, but uh, they're intensely pro-Trump. So he can't afford to do that. At the same time, he is trying to win over uh, some of the people in the middle, suburbanites who are more moderate, by uh, pretending to be, he's no moderate when you study his record, he's clearly very conservative on social issues, for example, uh, but he's trying to appear moderate and he does it by refusing to take stands. Mm-hmm. He is the ultimate tabula rasa. He's being sold that way. Blank slate, never held public office. He just wants to serve you. Well, what does that mean? What, what does that mean? It means nothing. I always tell people, remember the two most powerful letters in the English alphabet are R and D. And once you know the letter next to someone's name, there's a 99% chance you can predict what they will do in a wide range of issues. So, I mean, he's opposed to vaccine mandates. He's he's opposed to legal abortion. Those are the issues that you'd expect from from a Republican. How are those issues playing? You know, for example, are are, are Democrats making an issue of the Texas abortion law in Virginia? Have they have they managed to use that uh, as a as a wedge issue? Or- they've used it. They've used it. But, you know, it faded from the headlines because we're all waiting to see what the Supreme Court does. And it, we're unlikely to see a, uh, a decision uh, anytime soon or even an indication of the decision. So it's not going to affect this election. The vaccine mandates, though, the, the public here is strongly, overwhelmingly in favor of vaccine mandates mm. for lots of different reasons. That could be Yunkin's Achilles heel. And it's certainly one that uh, McAuliffe has been exploiting to the degree possible. That and Trump, those are the two great weaknesses uh, for Trump. 
uh, for uh, uh, Youngkin, Trump and vaccine mandates. So you're famous for the crystal ball looking looking ahead, um, which, of course, relies on polling and, and other analyses. Give me your sense of the of the biggest challenge facing pollsters and polling, because there were a lot of people that thought that 2020 was very close to a massive polling miss. You can disagree with me if you like, but what 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 is the what what is the challenge faced right now? Biggest challenge by pollsters? The biggest challenge is getting a truly representative sample of those who will turn up to vote one way or the other. It's uh, it's difficult to do because increasingly, many of the Trump base will not answer the phone, will not talk to news organizations, even ones they they may agree with. You know, apparently the Fox poll has also had trouble getting uh, pro-Trump voters to fully participate in their surveys. So that's the difficulty. Now, you can always wait uh, the number that you get from any category, let's say Trump supporters. The problem with waiting is you're assuming that the people who refuse to participate have essentially the same views as the people who did participate. And that's that's sketchy. You know, think of it this way. Uh, if you're polling on a Saturday and you're trying to fill your quota, whatever it may be, for 18 to 24 years old, year old uh, respondents, uh, there's going to be a problem because the young people who are sitting in on Saturday are probably not representative of the universe of 18 to 24. Yeah, they have a low voting rate, but you get my point. I, I do. Okay, so one, one, one last question about the Pew Research report that came out, a, a poll that came out last week that found, and this is a glass half full, glass half empty, which side you come down on. Do you get two thirds of Republicans say they want Trump to, to retain major, polit, uh, major political role in the party? 44% want him to run again in 2024. Okay, so depending on which side of the divide you come down on, some people say only 44%. So this would suggest that there's a big constituency in the Republican Party for giving him a gold watch and having him ride off into the sunset. Um, others would go, hey, any candidate going into a primary with 44% of the vote is a prohibitive favor. What do, what do you think? Is that, what is, what is your takeaway from two thirds want him to retain a major political role? 44% um, want him to run again. Number one, it is not the Republican Party anymore. It is the Trump Party. Number two, uh, the key variable is how many Republicans will choose to challenge Trump. Now, Chris Christie seems to be well on the way. Will others jump in, the more marginal candidates who are thinking about it but are worried about challenging Trump, Nikki Haley, uh, Mike Pence, and the like? I don't know. But the more candidates who jump in, the better Trump's chances. During the competitive mm-hmm. part of the primaries in 2016, Trump only got 38% of the vote, but there were 17 well. candidates. Yeah, you know, it was a, easy to win. Burned into my memory. And of course, yes. you know, they, they all thought, well, we're not going to attack Trump because uh, somebody else will take him out. And we know how that came. I think I think part of the problem is, is you identified who's going to actually get in. You know, would Ron DeSantis run against Trump? I doubt it. Nikki Haley run? I, I don't know. I have no idea what Chris Christie's going to do or what, you know, what, what, what he thinks his constituency is. Mike Pence? Let me get, yeah. what do you think about my, what, what, what is, what do you think Mike was going on in Mike Pence's head? How does, how does he game this out? What is the scenario where he thinks that he makes a comeback? Well, I guess he could run on the slogan. I survived. I survived. Uh, there was yeah. no hanging, but yeah. What does he do without Trump? Now had Trump 
gotten a second term and assuming we actually had an election in 2024, uh, probably Pence would have been Trump's choice by process of elimination. He'd never be enthusiastic about anybody other than himself. Uh, but it's amazing the way uh, Pence's future just evaporated on January 6th. You know, over the weekend, one of the things that uh, Trump said was he was contra- he was uh, contrasting himself uh, to Hillary Clinton saying, well, she conceded. I never conceded. I wonder whether or not we will ever have a losing candidate for president conceding again or, or whether or not what you saw Al Gore do back in 2000 or Nixon do back in 1960, whether that's just a lost American tradition that that we will will, you know, we're going to be caught in this constant loop of denial. Do you, do you worry about that sort of thing? Because I do. Uh, I, first, I, I worry <laughs> about it. So I, I don't think, Charlie, there are too many people who are as rude and dismissive of American tradition as Donald Trump. The fact that he never called Biden, much less had him over to the White House, or that Melania Trump never even called her successor as first lady, no uh, much less had the traditional T. People say, oh, those things don't matter. I they disagree do. strongly. Yeah. Tradition matters to any democracy, and you have to preserve them. And Trump was destroying them right and left. And unfortunately, as he destroys those those traditions, he also coarsens the entire political culture. I mean, it it does go the up. This is that 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 doom loop that more people, you know, see the bullying, they see the cruelty, and they go, "Yeah, I'm okay with that." Well, that changes the country, doesn't it? It, it changes the country. Uh, we were already coarse enough, uh, thanks to certain political figures and social media. Now it's much worse than it was when all of this started. It really is worse. And any objective observer is going to see that tracing, say, 2015 uh, to the current year. I don't know where it ends. All I can tell you is that's why we undertook this project, to try and come up with some practical suggestions. And I'm not convinced they'll work. You know, and I'm the one spending the money. Yeah, but you have to. You have, you have to try. You have to. You have to throw. I, I know exactly what you mean. You you have to try um, as as opposed to giving up because I think one of the dangers is that people will give up. They will disengage, and when they disengage, well, that's that's part of that history of how authoritarians win, isn't it? It's how authoritarians win. It's also how violence spreads. And the big difference, as we all know, between now and the 1860s, is that there is no sectional. Uh, uh, sectional division that makes sense for the country as we had in 1860-61. Instead, you've got big blue parts and big red parts of virtually every state. And even the most Republican or the most Democratic have lots of places that support the other side. So what are we going to do? Are we going to, to fight our own citizens in the states? Are we going to we going to go back to the South Africa uh, method of, of enclaves? Uh, really, I just don't know what the future holds for us. And if you're not concerned about it and you're not thinking about it, you are truly part of the problem. Yeah, well, maybe we'll divide by county by county. Uh, Larry Sabato, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, Larry's the founder and the director of the University of Virginia's Center for Politics and, of course, the publisher of Sabato's Crystal Ball newsletter. And his latest book is A Return to Normalcy? Question mark. The 2020 election that almost broke America. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I, I really enjoyed our, our talk, Charlie, and I salute you for all the work you've done, too, in this area. Well, thank you. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again.